Well, Acts 15, uh, this story, it's a hard one to preach on because it's a story about a very like, complex and specific theological debate. And typically theological debates like, aren't great, don't make for great sermons, especially not, this is a theological debate about, about circumcision. And my guess is like none of you on your way here with your spouse or with your friends or your kids was like, hey, like, what about circumcision? What do you think about that? Like, I mean, let's talk this out together. Like, we just, that's just so irrelevant to us. And yet, the, the debate here in Acts 15, it's about, it's about circumcision. And the other reason why it's hard is we just spent eight weeks in the, gospel of, uh, in the book of Galatians. And that was the debate center at, in the center of that book. And so it feels like we've already talked about it um, a lot. And we have already talked about it a lot. Um, but the reason why Acts 15 we really wanted to preach on is there's something unique about this chapter of scripture that that actually is different slightly different than Galatians something new comes out here that's really important that we get, didn't get to talk about um, much in the Galatian series and so the result of this very strange debate in Acts 15 is that the church Christianity is going to become something completely different than than other religions are than other ways of seeing the world like Christianity is going to become something very very different as the result of this uh, of this council here in Acts 15. So what is it? Well, uh, to get into what that unique thing is, um, I want to unpack this text kind of in three ways. One, this text, it's about gospel clarity, it's about gospel authority, and about gospel love. So first, uh, gospel clarity. In the debate, it's really summed up well in Acts 15, verse 1. Uh, and, and Luke, as he's describing what's happened uh, here he says this, he says, some men came down from Judea, down basically from where Jerusalem was, where Christianity started, into the rest of the world where Paul was now planting churches. So some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what, what does that mean? What's the debate um, about? And, and even though this seems strange to us, that some people would say, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You have to understand that if you had grown up as a Jewish person, if you were culturally Jewish, this would not be strange. That the Jewish scriptures had told uh, the people of God, in particular men, that if you're going to be a part of the people of God, you have to be circumcised. And the commands were all over the scriptures. It was a really important sign to them being distinct from the rest of the world was that men were to be circumcised. And so that, that's just weird to you. Just don't, like, don't be so culturally insensitive. Right? L- listen into that culture. That, that's how they thought. And so when, when, when the church began to teach, you no longer had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. It shouldn't surprise us to, for that people like, well, said, wait a minute, that's in the Bible. There's commands for that. That was really important. How can we just get rid of that? Like, that, like that's in the Bible. Why should we ignore that? And so that's why Paul does what he does. He stops his really incredibly successful church planning mission he was on. He's planting churches all over the world. And we're told that, uh, that Paul, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. And then they went to Jerusalem. So Paul stops, he stops his church planning mission, and he, goes, he basically goes into all the places he's planted churches to, to unpack this debate, to talk about this debate to have this conversation, that he takes a ton of time because this is a really important question. And so all the church gathers into Jerusalem to talk about this, and really important church leaders get up and speak, and, and they, they hash this out 
together. And as all of the church leaders get together, they speak, they debate, they talk, they come to two really important conclusions. The first conclusion they come to is that because Jewish fulfilled the, or because Jesus fulfilled the Jewish law, Christians are no longer saved. You're not saved by keeping the law. And that, that's, that was the whole series on Galatians. So, like, if you, wanna, if you want us to unpack that more, we've already done that in eight podcasts. I'm not going to do that this morning. But that's, that's the first point they make. And, and Peter is explicit on this. He says, now we're saved, uh, uh, verse 9, I think it is, we're saved um, by grace uh, through, through faith. Oh, no, verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, no longer through the keeping of the law. So that's the first uh, conclusion they come to. The second conclusion they come to is, is the one I want to talk about, and it's the one that makes Christianity unique and distinct from every other religion, every other way of seeing the world. And it's embedded in what Paul or when Peter says when he gets up to speak, starting in verse 8. Uh, Peter says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, who are Gentiles, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us, between Gentiles, and uh, between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither I nor our fathers have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So here's how I'll summarize what Peter is saying here and, and what to me makes Christianity now unique as a religion. And that is the second conclusion of this council is that Christianity is not tied to any particular culture. And how this gets worked out here is that as, as a Jewish person, Peter would have had an, just drilled into his mind that Gentiles were unclean. But now he says in verse 9 that that God has cleansed their hearts. He's made them clean by faith. So what makes the Gentiles clean is not, not what they eat. It's not what they wear. And it's not by following the Jewish law. They're made clean by by faith. And that's important because one of the reasons why the Hebrew Bible is so long and there's so many laws is that The Jewish law was meant to show that God's people were to be set apart. They were to be distinct and different. They were not to assimilate into the rest of the world. They were not to become like the rest of the world. And so therefore they had very strict rules about what they could eat, what they could uh, wear, uh, uh, how they interacted. When they got sick, they had to do certain things. And so Peter is saying that's not what makes God's people distinct or different anymore. What makes us different now as Christians is not what we wear, not uh, not what we uh, eat. It's... It's faith in Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit and to live a gospel-empowered life. And so what the the conclusion the council does is it says you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian because Christianity is not connected to Judaism or, or to Jewish culture or to any culture. Christianity is outside of a culture. You don't have to cut your hair in a certain way to be a Christian. You don't have to wear certain clothing in order to be a Christian. You don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew to be a Christian. You don't have to work, like, like a particular kind of music in order to become a Christian. Christianity is not tied to any culture. And that, even though that like, liberates Christianity, it's why Christianity explodes into all of the world. Right? And Christianity isn't tied to, like most Christians don't live in Jerusalem anymore. They're, they're in South America. They're in Africa. They're in Europe. They're in North America. Because 
Christianity is not tied to a culture, whereas that's not true in, in other religions. But, but that also means Christianity now becomes very messy. Because it's a lot easier if we just say, well, you got to wear this. These are the four songs you're going to sing. This is how you cut your hair. This is what you eat. That's, that makes things not messy. But now things become incredibly messy. And, and if, if you're going to be like a faithful gospel Christian, you're going to have to embrace that, that mess. That in Christianity, there are lots of different types of people who are Christians living out of their own culture and their own experience. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, my, uh, my grandfather was arguably the best Christian I ever knew. He passed away about a year ago. And when I began to grow my beard out in my early 20s, my grandfather had a really hard time with that. Uh, because he had this assumption that if you grew a beard, you were lazy uh, you might be a hippie, like you might just go off and live in a field somewhere and, you know, smoke things and do that. You know, that might be, that, that's where you're headed if you grow a beard. Because his culture in the, you know, the late 30s, early 40s was clean shaven, right? You shave, he's like, he doesn't understand the millennial beard growing trend. That's just, he didn't connect with that. Um, and, and so here's what's important, or here's what the beauty of Christianity is, is that you can have either like a wild beard that you're growing out, or a clean-shaven face. You don't have to adapt to the proper beard culture in order to be a Christian. Because if you did, then everyone would have to grow a beard, and that just would be weird and not, not helpful, not right to those who can't grow a beard. That was sarcastic, in case you, know, you were picking up on that. But, but that's one example. Is that, that's, those are two different cultural preferences, clean-shaven or beard-growing. The gospel doesn't speak to that. The Bible doesn't speak to that. Or think of it uh, another way, that... Um, you know, I grew up in a, a predominantly white church, and white churches tend to, tended to have very strict rules about dancing. And so uh, my white church growing up uh, had the rule you can't dance in church. So when my wife and I, we got married in that church, but we could not have our reception in that church. We had to go somewhere else because you couldn't dance in that, that church. Now, the African-American church has a very different cultural experience, whereas they, rather than having rules against dancing, if you didn't dance in the African-American church, they'd look at you like, are you a Christian? Like, do you really love... Um, Jesus. And so there was one uh, summer I was working uh, a summer camp in an African-American church. And once I found out, once they found out I was a drummer, uh, if it was raining or if it was too hot for the kids to go outside and play kind of during the recess break of the day, we'd go into the sanctuary and I would just play drum beats, just whatever I felt, just play the drums for like 30 minutes. And the kids just dance in the sanctuary. I'd drum, they'd dance, and that was it. So like those are two very different cultural expressions of Christianity. One is no dancing, one is dancing all the time. Right? And they're different. Right? One may be a little bit more fun than the other, but they're different in their cultural preferences. And that, like the gospel doesn't say, thou shalt dance or thou shalt not dance. It doesn't. And that's a part of the messiness of Christianity. It's people with different cultural preferences are now to be in community with one another. And when we interact with Christians of different cultures, that can lead to real tension. And what begins to happen and what we have to be on guard against is we begin to import our cultural preferences as part of the gospel, as part of you have to do this to be a Christian. And what the church is saying in Acts 15 is no. We, you don't have to adapt a particular culture in order to become a Christian, but Christianity can be expressed and flourished in all cultures. But that raises a question, and, and this question is really important, and that is, how do you know when it's a cultural preference and it's gospel-centered? Right? How do you know when it's, like, this is just my, I just prefer to grow a beard, versus 
growing a beard like could cost you the gospel. Like, how do you know when that's when that's happening when it's not? And that's that's point two, which is so first is gospel clarity. We're saved by grace through faith, not by any works, not by adapting to a particular culture. So second, uh, gospel authority. And you see kind of two things happening in this passage. And the first is that the the disciples have a clear authority for their decision-making process. And I want to push into that because verse 28 in Acts 15 is one of, I think it's it's a verse that's often used in dangerous ways. Um, And so as the the disciples and apostles, as they're making the determination about what to do moving forward, they they say this about the process, about their experience in coming to this conclusion. They say this, it says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit... And to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And this phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, makes it sound like, um, you know, they sort of got in a circle, they talked, they prayed, and then they just made a decision. And, and oftentimes, in the last 15, 20 years or so, I've seen this verse be used to make major theological shifts within a church um, because basically, like, you know, we talked about it, we prayed about it, and we decided this was the right thing to do. And I want to be clear, that's not what's happening here. They're not making uh, a decision based on what they think is right. The authority for what, uh, what they're doing in this passage is clear throughout this passage. And that is, their authority is the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit reveals, him, reveals Jesus to them in the Scriptures. So one, we have to remember in Acts 10, Peter had been given a very specific uh, revelation that now, like it doesn't matter what you eat anymore. There's no cleaner, Gentiles are now clean through faith. Like Peter was given that revelation in Acts 10. And so that, that's one, the Spirit has already spoken to Peter, who's an apostle. And that caused the church then to go back and say, okay, well, what's, what do the scriptures say? And you find James quoting from Amos 9 at the end of the council to put the stamp of authority on what they've done to say basically the idea that the Gentiles were to become a part of the people of God is all over the Hebrew Bible. Like, this isn't a new thing. Right? God is not, he's not, he's not just ignoring what he's done for all time. And even though we don't have to obey the law anymore, um, this heart for the Gentiles God has always had. And so the authority for the, the Christians here in Acts 15 is the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to the apostles through the scriptures. And so the primary way, if we're going to like find ways to distinguish between cultural preference and what, what, what is about the gospel, our authority must and always be the Bible, the scriptures. And there's a process to get there. And, and there's three dangers, I think, in, in this process that I, I want to unpack. And the first is the danger of inconsistency. And so one of the, the most constant critiques I hear from non-Christians who critique uh, Christians who take the Bible seriously is that Christians, uh, they, you just pick and choose what commands you want to you obey and what commands you don't. And so in Leviticus, it tells you not to eat shrimp. But I see lots of Christians eating shrimp, or you can't eat pigs in the Old Testament. Christians eat bacon. And, and so you, you, pick the, you don't want to do that command, so you ignore it. But there are other commands you like, and so you pick those, you ignore those, and, and I won't tell you why, uh, how I got here, because I don't regularly watch The View, but that argument was before it on The View uh, just a couple weeks ago. It was, you Christians, you pick some commands, you, you ignore other commands, and you're inconsistent, and that's not loving, and you're unkind to people in doing that. And so, like, what, that's an important argument to respond to. And I wanna, what's happening here in Acts 15 is they're not picking and choosing what part of the Bible to obey and what part of the Bible to ignore. Actually, the reason why, as a Christian, you can eat all the bacon you want this afternoon is not because you're ignoring a command of the Bible, but because you're obeying the Bible. 
And in Acts 15, they're saying here explicitly, the apostles, that you do not have to follow the Jewish law anymore in order to be a Christian. You don't have to follow the diet laws anymore to be a Christian. And so they're not picking and choosing. They're actually they're obeying the Bible by, by uh, what they're doing and by uh, submitting themselves to the authority of the Bible. And so here's how this works out. When they, they write to the Gentiles to say, okay, here's what we want you to do. This is what, um, this is what they say they should do. Verse 29. The apostles write to Gentiles, uh, we want you to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now that's, that's confusing, I know, uh, and it introduces a lot. I'll talk about the first half of the verse in point three. What I want to point now is, is kind of the second part of what they, they say. That oftentimes when people accuse Christians of picking and choosing what commands we obey, what commands we don't, it's around the issue of, of human sexuality. Um, you, you like some verses, you don't like others. And, and that's why what I, they say here is really interesting to me, because on the one hand, they're saying, you don't, have to buy, you don't have to obey the Jewish dietary laws anymore. You don't, have to, you don't have to eat certain things, you have to be circumcised. None of that's relevant anymore. But they do, talk, they do mention sexual immorality. And the reason, I think, is that uh, is the Gentiles in that day had a very permissive sexual ethic, much like our own in our culture today, it was basically like, just don't harm anybody, and, and you can do whatever you want other than that. And so when the, when the Jewish people write to the Gentiles and say, you don't have to, the dietary laws don't matter anymore, um, uh, the circumcision laws don't matter anymore, but it's almost like they carve out an exception to say, but, the, but you do need to keep the Hebrew sexual ethic. That matters. And so as Christians have traditionally understood Acts 15, what, what this has done is said, on the one hand, we do not have to keep the, law, the Hebrew law in order for it to be saved. But any law that the New Testament says don't ignore, we, we can't ignore. And any New, any New Testament command, or any command in the New Testament that's affirmed in the New Testament from the Hebrew Scriptures, we have to keep obeying. And so this is pretty dense, this is pretty complex, but my main point is this. As Christians, we don't pick and choose what commands we want to follow and what commands we don't want to follow. We obey the whole Bible. And here in this unique moment, the Holy Spirit has revealed to the apostles that Gentiles are now made clean through faith and, and through their study of the scriptures together that this thread through Amos and through Isaiah and honestly, all the way back to Genesis 12, of God having a heart for the Gentiles, now they begin to understand the Hebrew scriptures in a fresh way. So that's the first danger is inconsistency. As Christians, we shouldn't just say, I like that command, I'm going to follow it. I don't like that command, I'm going to ignore it. We can't do that. It's not fair. The second danger is the danger of, of isolation. And so that, the second thing that's happening here is the Bible is read together in community. So today, most studies would show that about 80% of, of Christians think that you, you do not need the church in order to be, to be spiritual. You don't need the church to flourish. And if what, what people meant by that was, well, you don't need the church to be saved, that, well, that's what we believe as Protestants, right? We believe you're saved through grace, uh, by faith, right? Not, not through church membership or through just going to church. That doesn't save you. But my, my hunch is what people actually mean when they say that, or at least it's been my encounter as, as a pastor, is that, is that actually you, you don't need the help of the church to interpret God's will for you, to help you with what's true, what's not true. All of those things you can kind of decide on yourself. But that's not what's happening here. Rather, ever, like, the apostles come together. They study the Bible in community. And I think we need to do that. That's really important for us to do because we all have biases. 
We all have a certain way of seeing the world, and we need other people to say, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this look at the, the Bible? It's one of the important things, I think, of our structure of the church is, is we have a teaching team meeting. So every week when we, we preach on a passage, there are 15, 16 people in a room talking it out. There's a few preachers. We're trying to discern together, what does the Scripture say? And so gospel authority often is lost, both in inconsistency, right? We try to, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to ignore that part of the Bible and agree with that part of the Bible, or it's, it's lost in isolation. We go and we, we, we you know, I'm going to decide for myself. I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I can decide this for myself, which I, th- I think really overlooks our blind spots, um, things we miss. You need community to understand the Bible. I need community to understand the Bible. The third danger, then, is the danger of, of individualism. And th- what I mean by this is, here's the reality. If the gospel is true, and the gospel basically says, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner who is uh, broken and in need of grace and has to believe the gospel in order to be saved. If that's true, then if we're sinners and we're broken and we're doing things wrong, it means we're going to see things that we think are right that the Bible has said is wrong. And we're going to see things that we think are wrong that the Bible says are right. And the question is, well, who, who wins? Our feelings or our desires or what, what our heart knows to be right or, or the Scriptures? And I think what's really important here is we should be really glad that the apostles did not listen to their feelings to make this decision. Because Peter, if you remember back in Acts 10, it took... It took three direct revelations from God to convince him that Gentiles could become Christians without becoming Jewish. I mean, his feelings were very clear on this. Gentiles are unclean, and they have to, like, they have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. And so I'm really grateful Peter didn't say, you know, my heart tells me that, that Gentiles have to become Jewish. And that's my feeling on the mat. I'm glad that's not what happened. Instead, they submitted to the Holy Spirit and to the Scriptures, and they changed. That if Acts 15 had been about the, the apostles just gathering in a circle together, praying, disconnected from the Bible, disconnected from what the Holy Spirit had revealed to them, and just talked out their feelings, what they thought was right, you would have a very different conclusion than what we have here. And so but through all this, here's what, here's what really matters. And that is that, that and, and I know like in our culture, this probably isn't a, a popular idea, but, but truth and doctrine really matters. If they had gotten this wrong... If they came to the conclusion, you know, every guy's got to be circumcised to be, become a Christian, like that would have caused, and I mean, both literally and, and physically uh, and, and emotionally, like a lot of pain to a lot of people. Had they gotten this wrong? But it's not just truth that matters. I mean, probably this room, most people in this room are like, yeah, truth, doctrine. Most of us are probably there. But that's not where this passage stops. It doesn't stop with the apostles banging the gavel saying, this is what's right, you better do it. It ends... It ends in love, gospel love. I spent uh, most of last week in, in Phoenix at a conference for uh, Duchenne uh, muscular dystrophy. And uh, that's what our oldest son um, has. And, and, and a lot of the boys that are, are older are all in, uh, they're in wheelchairs. And so when we got to the, the, the conference and, and checked into the hotel, as the hotel um, checked us in, uh, they started by giving us a map of the entire place and said, okay, if you need to get down to the pool, this way is accessible. If you need to get down to the conference, this way is accessible. If you need to get to the rooms, this way is accessible. And they just showed us all the ways. If you, if you can't use stairs, go this way, go that way. Here, and, we, you know, we want to help you. 
And just thinking on that in Acts 15, like, I think Christians are to be very similar in the way we operate with other people. We don't, we don't build stairs. We don't make it difficult to be in a relationship with us. We build ramps. We make access easy. And here's how this plays out in this, this passage. I read this verse earlier, and it's confusing, I know, so let me unpack it. But when the Jewish people say to the Gentiles, you don't have to become, Christ- you don't have to become Jewish to become Christians. You don't have to keep our diet laws. You don't have to get circumcised. But we do, we're going to ask this of you, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what's been strangled in, in sexual immorality. So what, what, is it, why, what is all this meat and blood, and what's that about? So the apostles are telling Gentile Christians, don't eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols at the local temple if there are Jewish Christians around you. And what you have to remember is that, that Jewish and Gentile people who are completely different cultures, are now, they're going to now come together and be not just people who like worship together and then go their own separate ways, but actually to try to become a family. Brothers and sisters, that language gets used throughout this passage. But this creates all kinds of problems because the Jewish people have grown up their entire lives with meats having been sacrificed to idols as unclean, as false worship, as idolatry. And now a Gentile Christian and a Jewish Christian are going to sit down together and eat together. And what the the Jewish apostles are saying to these Gentile Christians is, listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with eating that meat. There's not demons in it, right? It's not... There's nothing, you could eat that meat all you want and still be saved, still be a Christian. But, like, you now worship with Jewish Christians who just can't in good conscience eat that meat. They just, they think it's wrong. They've grown up their entire lives thinking that. And so instead of putting a big old, you know, piece of bacon in front of your Jewish brother or sister, just don't, don't eat that meat. Give up your rights, your preferences, what you hope, what you want so that, your other bro- so that your brothers and sisters can eat with you and can be in community with you. In other words, where you could put stairs, put a ramp. And that, listen, that's the only way people of two different cultures can ever come together, is that both say, you know what, I, I'm going to lay down my preferences, lay down my, what I want to see happen, so that you and I can be in community together. And that's really hard. That's why it takes a whole chapter of the Bible here in Acts 15 to happen. It's why this is a problem that's unique to Christianity. Right? Like if you're, if you're in a different religion, typically it's you have to become our culture in order to become a Christian. That's why if you're, most Muslims still live in one part of the world. Most Hindus still live in one part of the world. But Christians were all over the place. Because from the beginning, Christianity said you don't have to join a culture to become a Christian, but it, it raised the question, how do two people of two different cultures come together and sit down and worship together and become family together and get to know one another? And so here's how I want to think this out together as we conclude. And, and I want to ask a few questions. And that is, as, as you come into the church community, do you come in as a, a sacrificing member of, of our community, one who's ready to deny your rights and preferences for the good of others? Or as a consumer who needs your preferences met? Are you willing to submit your preferences for others? Are you willing to submit to discomfort to put your cultural preferences on hold in order to give space and to build a ramp for someone with a different cultural experience 
to come in and, and, and feel welcomed into this community? Are you willing to put down your preferences in order that this would be a unified place, not around a particular culture, but the gospel? Because it's, real, it's, it's really hard for two, for two people of two different cultures to come together. And I, like, I'm not just talking socioeconomic differences or uh, racial differences, even something like age. That for someone uh, older than 50 to worship in a church where someone who is 35 is the pastor requires incredible sacrifice on the part of someone who's older to make this church home. One of our our best leaders, someone who's really dear to me, said to me not too long ago, you know, Tim, my preference is hymns played from piano. But I, I love this church and I want to serve it, and so I don't need that. And so she gives up a preference. Even though there's lots of other churches that would better fit that preference for her, she gives that up to make community possible. She's embraced discomfort. And because of that, the gospel can live through her in a way that it can't live through most Christians who are very firm on their preferences and will not move. Because the reality is the only way that someone who is poor can attend a church with someone who is rich is love and sacrifice and the giving up of preferences. The only way someone who is Old can worship with someone who is young or vice versa is if you get, it's love and sacrifice and giving up of your preferences. The only way people of different uh, racial backgrounds could ever worship together is for people to give up their preferences. The only way that a K-State fan could worship with a KU fan is to give up your... And I, listen, I joke about that. Actually, in the church I grew up in, a guy put a big... Uh, it was in Indiana, it's uh, Indiana and Purdue. Um, that's the K-State, KU equivalent, just to be clear. But he would put a Purdue mug on his his organ, every Sunday morning, and then he would, like, from the microphone, like, just trash IU, Indiana University, which that's my, that's my backing. And it was just incredibly alienating. It was just annoying. It's like, well, just be quiet. <laughs> and that's, like, that hap- Like, we, we put our cultural uh, preferences on display. Oftentimes, they're assumed. We don't know they're there. And by that process, we exclude. And we limit and here's the real challenge. I'm not naive. Like, I know the moment we do anything that would bring you guys any discomfort, you can pick up and go to a church where it's more comfortable, where they won't do that, where everyone looks like you and talks like you and is exactly like you. And that, that just breaks my heart. Because what makes Christianity unique is not, is not just the, that Jesus is real and is actually reigning from history. It's that we... From the beginning, the church said, this gospel can go into any culture and find beautiful and true expression from within any culture. And so we as apostles, the authoritative people who started the church, we're not going to suppress you Gentiles and make you become Jewish in order to become Christian. We're going to let the gospel flourish in your experience. The only way that can happen, though, is is for both of us to give and take. And so Gentiles, like you give up this, we'll give up that, and there becomes this this place of self-sacrifice. And it breaks my heart, one, because when we, when we divide over preferences, we limit the power of the gospel. But secondly, you miss an experience of experiencing the gospel in a different culture experience. And listen, I, I've predominantly gone to, to the, the most different church I ever went to is the church that I fell in love with uh, more than any other church. And that is, uh, it was a rural church, a bunch of farmers. They were all older than me. 
Um, so every, I mean, I was probably the youngest person there. I was the part-time youth ministry pastor. I didn't like the music. I didn't like the preaching. None of it connected with me. It was a very different experience of Christianity culturally. Um, it was rural farmer Christianity. And I was always uncomfortable. And I, lo- I loved it. And don't listen, it's not, it's not like we're not going to try to make the preaching bad or the music bad here. It's like we're going to see how bad we can make things and see if you like. No, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. My saying is that you cannot come into a church and worship within the gospel without, without giving up your cultural preferences. And I hope you'll do that because it's what makes Christianity unique is we build ramps to other people, not stairs. We make it easier, not harder. And we are willing to embrace discomfort to expand the reach of the gospel to people that would never hear it if we just hold on to our own preferences. And ultimately, that's at the center of the gospel. Isn't that what Jesus did for you and me? Like Jesus, do you think he preferred earth to heaven? Right? Or do you think he preferred the cross to his throne or that he preferred me to the heavenly host of angels that worshipped him perfectly for eternity? Or that he preferred you to the experience he had in heaven? Of course not. And yet he said, I will give up all my rights. I will give up, I will give up everything that's mine. I will embrace discomfort. I will embrace suffering. I will embrace death. To welcome people who are not a part of my family into my family. Right? He who was unclean, or who he was clean, came to us who was unclean, embracing incredible discomfort to make us clean so that our hearts could be cleansed, not by what we do, not by works, but through faith in Jesus and him alone. Let's pray. Father, I say this, I know like I've got this is where I have to go first. I have to submit my preferences. And God, I pray first, like we don't even know those things a lot of times. Something as simple as as, as what a beard is or dancing in church. God, it's just things we, we just, little rules we have that we, we don't realize we're making that then become firm and then begin to exclude. God, just would you just open our eyes to the ways in which we expect other people to conform to our experience in order to, to be a part of our church, to be a part of Christianity. God, would you open our eyes to that? But secondly, I, I, I want to thank you in particular for um, people in our congregation who are older, who have submitted preferences to be a part of a church where a pastor is really, really young. God, that is, that's been powerful. And that is, God, that, that, there's just been a ministry that's come out of that that is really unique. And so I give you thanks for that. And I pray, as Naya prayed earlier, that you would unify our church not around what we like or what we don't, but you unify us around the gospel, which would open the door to so many people coming to know Jesus who may never have, ha- may never, never have, have encountered him because where it would have been easier to build a barrier or to build stairs, God, we, we made access. We laid down our rights to welcome others in. God, make us into that church and show us how to do it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.